Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, we'll be finishing up our look at following the equator. And with that, finishing up our look at the travel logs, the travel writing of Mark Twain, which we have been exploring off and on for, for quite a while now, beginning with, I guess, life on the Mississippi um, months and months ago. So, um, yeah, let's let's see. So we were in India, and the, in the last 100 pages or so of this book continues to focus mostly on India. Um, I... You know, I asked, I, you know, a lot, there's a lot of wonderful, interesting aspects of this book about um, India, Indian culture, Indian traditions, encountering um, uh, encountering like British civilization, encountering the civilized mission and all of that. Um, you know, like the reformation of class boundaries is something that I, I think did I talked about that last time. I think I may have. But with mature European imperialism, there was kind of this global reformation of class boundaries. as like there's more of a global proletariat than ever before. Of course, in industrialization, you had the formation of new class systems. But imperialism kind of projected that out into the broader world and then created kind of a global periphery. Right. Um now his tour was of really the anglo-american empire right uh first hawaii then australia then all the way to africa um but yeah i think i talked a little bit about this last time basically is um this part of the book um the stuff about india and to a lesser degree south africa is really talking about a much more established culture and the encounter with it, like we we get we we learn about Hindu princes under the strain of the British modernization project. We learn about um, how that power evaporated um, by the quote factories, schools, hospitals, reforms, and the institutions of colonial uh, modernity. Um, so, but one thing that's really uh, some, or at least some of the things, and then we talk about the thuggies and. And that seems to be created out of the spaces uh, established by by European imperialism, right? Uh, those boundary zones create were not that boundary between modernity and tradition wasn't fully sealed, and so in those spaces you get things like like the thugs, right? Um, and it, and then he also spends a lot of time talking about the Sepoy Mutiny here, which is another bis disruption of Indian society by British imperialism. So although it's not as acute. As you have in uh, the earlier part of the book, I do think his anti-imperialist message is quite strong here, nonetheless. Um, and and in many ways, it's it, it's it's more compelling in that it's not just like a one-sided devastation. It's 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 more of like a a, a disruption running through Indian society in various ways. Um, but he does take on the civilizing project in in British India. And one of the most exciting and interesting parts of this this book, in the latter half anyways, is his interest in the eradication of wild animals as part of the civilizing mission. If you're interested in ecological history or just environmental issues overall, I urge you to like check out um, those chapters. It's like chapter, what is it, 57, something like that, 56, 57. 
where he kind of gets into ecology and talks about uh, the treatment of wild animals and that basically there's a bounty put on on tigers and other and snakes and other creatures that were deemed kind of a threat to the public. Quote, for many years, the British Indian government has been trying to destroy the murderous wild creatures and has spent a great deal of money on the effort. The annual official return shows that the undertaking is a difficult one, end quote. But the reader gets the feeling that the strategy employed by the British to regulate wild animals, you know, wasn't that much different from their approach to like the thuggies or the sepoys or these other um, like aspects of Indian, the Indian landscape that were considered kind of problematic. Right now, he confesses that these animals don't seem to kill that many people in India, but they're still sort of deemed a problem. So this is a, an example of of how modern eyes look at ecology as something to be tamed and subdued, even if it's not a civilian, so serious threat, right? So he cites that snakes killed 103,000 in six years. I don't know. That seems like a lot, actually, to me. Um, I don't know where he gets that number from. But the British killed over a million snakes in retaliation. Um, but, you know, maybe that threat is... Well, first of all, does killing a million snakes um, re reduce the number of snakes? Uh, my understanding of rats is that if you if you find a nest of rats and you kill them, all you're doing is creating space for an ecological space for rats to reproduce. Right? That that a city has a certain rat carrying capacity. Right? And that might depend on how much garbage there is and how clean the people are and. And other features, right? Are there, you know, places for them to dwell, sewers, subways, whatever. But mass killing of rats has not accomplished the goal of eliminating the rat population because you're just they reproduce so fast that they never have that kind of Malthusian limit, which does apply to animals, even though I've said many times I don't think it applies to humans because humans can... Uh, rationally regulate their reproductive lives and and be more productive and and things that rats can't do but i think that carrying capacity idea still does exist for 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 animals so a city would have a certain carrying capacity for us so like new york city i think it's like two million one or two million is they used to say one rat for every new yorker but actually apparently it's more like 25 percent. i just read a book about this um and then if you kill hundred thousand rats you're just that next generation will just have a hundred thousand more survivors and and all your i'm my guessing is that's with the snakes here too in india or maybe the dust of the tigers I, I i do think he talks a lot about the, the the murder of the tigers um by basically for bounties um and it's it's not quite as extensive as the as the killing the man killing snakes but it's still pretty um um, pretty substantial. He talks about, okay, the wolf uh, kills 700 a year. Uh, the eight, tigers kill 800. And 5,000 wolves are killed. And he actually says six in six years, 10,000 tigers were killed. Wow. I mean, I don't. I have a hard time believing this is not the root cause of our current, like, how do you not consider that? That just is massive to me. It sounds like massive numbers to me. To kill 10,000 tigers in six years, that's over a thousand a year. I don't know what the population of tigers were at the end of the 19th century, but I'm guessing we wouldn't be down to our last few tigers if we weren't killing them all off a century ago. It's kind of like the wolves, right? 
in, in the Americas, where they're almost driven to extinction by, by government policies that encouraged the killing of wolves. Uh, bears um, kill 100 people per year at the cost of 1,250. Now, I don't know about the numbers of the ones they kill. Like, my understanding is that wolves don't typically kill humans. They're rather afraid of them. Bears, I guess, do from time to time. Um, maybe leopards, although I have my doubts. Tigers, I'm sure. I'm sure wild cats are more dangerous than, than wolves, I'm guessing. But even cattle here... Um, but only a few are, a few are killed. But snakes are are massive in uh, massive numbers here of, of of snakes killed, and it's just it seems to be, an, uh, as far as I know, still unwritten environmental history of empire um, that maybe needs to be written, because certainly the Indians had their own ways of handling these animals, just like uh, the Indians had their own way of of handling droughts and uh, water shortages. But the British come in and start taxing irrigation, and then people stop investing in irrigation, and then when a drought comes, it leads to famine. Big surprise. Same thing with the tigers. I mean, the British come in and say, we got to kill all the tigers because they're a threat to humans. Well, what did the Mughals do with tigers? I mean, I'm sure it wasn't perfect in, you know, in an ecological kind of hippy-dippy, colors of the wind bullshit way. I'm not saying that, but they probably had their policies. And I don't think it involved, like, killing millions of snakes in retaliation. So, my, my suggestion here is that, that, that maybe there really needs, there may be people who have worked on this. I'm sure some have, but if anyone knows a source that would, could get me into this, I'd be love to read it. It's like a general environmental history of empire. Uh, definitely, I'm sure there's been specific histories written of this, but a general one. And and maybe maybe there's a, a space to... Uh, you know, for for someone like for, for for someone like you to come in and write that. Well, I just stopped and, and did a little Amazon search on this uh, because I, I was kind of interested. I three books came up: Environments and Empire and World History, three thousand BCE to um, I guess to the present, which might work. But that's a gen that's like not just European imperialism. Was well, to nineteen hundred. So, I mean, that's. That's from the Oxford World History of Empire. Maybe that's a series to worth uh, worth getting. I'll make a note of that. that, that might, I might dig it. Um, I know, like, is it Oxford's History of America is excellent. Um, then we have Environment uh, in Empire. Also, Oxford History of the British Empire Companion Series. Which I guess just is looking at the British Empire. Maybe that's the closest to what I'm talking about. But that seems to be a... Is that an edited book? Seems to be. And then we got Ecology and Empire, Environmental History of Settler Societies, which is about 20 years old and more. So that's that's looking at settler societies. So maybe that deals with Australia and in the New World and things like that. So anyways, uh, there are people looking at this. Um, but, you know, I'm sure there's more to be more to say about it. So I think the logic of extermination is, is what I was struck by in reading this part of the book anyways. Now anyways, uh, moving on from India to Africa, Twain's stay in Africa is considerably less lengthy and covers only the last few chapters of the book. Um, 
As with India, we see institutions of law, violence, institutions of power, economic incorporation into a global capitalist economy, uh, devastating, disrupting the lives of native people. So it's kind of a trope by this point in this in the book. It's just we get kind of different windows into the same essential story. Um, now, he seems to really think that it was as brutal in South Africa as in Australia. So he, he, he India was more of a civilization that had its own kind of resilience. Um, but he doesn't see that same thing in South Africa and Australia. Quote, the great bulk of savages must go. The white men wants their land. And all must go accepting such percentage of them as he will need to do his work for him upon terms to be determined by himself. The reduction of the population by Rhodesian methods to the desired limit is a return to old time, slow misery and lingering death system of a discarded time and a crude civilization. Um, and then he actually gets into looking at the diamond mines, the semi-forced labor that works the mines. And so what you just see in this entire book then is that across the British Empire, you have these intense labor regiments, depopulation, forced migration, violence, and global capitalism all working hand in hand um, alongside like cultural disruptions and, and rebellions and resistance. Um, and that is, I think, a good way of kind of wrapping up what this book does. It's excellent. It really is. This is really a, a strong book. It maybe is a little long um, and like other Twain Travel logs, it's full of anecdotes and stories and, and little short stories and tall tales and things like that. But it's not as bad as like, I think in especially like some of the other, like Innocence Abroad and, and A Tramp Abroad is worse there. Um, this one feels a little more on point, like the way Roughing It is more on point. And, and I think this along with Roughing It remained my favorite of the Mark Twain travel logs. So I just got a few more things to say because I'm going to put away this volume, but I, I do want to say that the editors were kind to include a bunch more travel writing, almost enough that would fill two episodes. It's actually 13 short selections under the title Other Travels. Um, now, some of these, the one reason I'm going to skip it is quite a few of these were published in the collected short works of Twain, which is two volumes. And I'm, I'll still plan to read those. I may not, I may just do one more volume of Twain and then, and then move on to other things. I've been thinking of going returning to the 20th Century Girls. And I, I really want to do novels. I, I think those are just the funnest. I've been reading Heinlein novels and, and you know, they, there's good audiobooks for these things. So I'm, I kind of want to stick to that. I may get back to the other Twain short stories a little bit later. I know I promised that with other writers too, but, you know, life, life's long enough. And, and, and we'll see if, if I keep doing this for a while, I'll have time to, to maybe get back to it. But, um, but these travel narratives, these 13 of them, is stretched from 1872 to 1897. And they're mostly about Europe. Um, they, some of them are like side quests on the, that, that maybe could have fit into their travel logs or somehow like minor trips he took or things he wrote for journalism. Um, one of them does speak about empire directly. That's the Shah of Persia, where Twain discusses the arrival in London of the Shah of Iran. And, we, and, and that's, of course, still a European travel log, but it's somehow connected to empire and that's really about how the british tried to apply pressure on the shah to change policies through an expat parsi population so it's like some dirty imperial shenanigans um 
We also have the Queen Victoria's Jubilee. We see the celebration of the successes of the reign of Queen Victoria, 50 years of her reign. Um, and part of that celebration was putting empire in display. Quote, then there was an exhaustive ex exhibition of the hundred separate brown races of India, the most beautiful and the most satisfying of the complexions that we have been vouchsafed to, vouchsafed to man and that one which best sets off the colored clothes and best harmonies with all the tints. The procession was the human race and exhibition, a spectacle, curious and interesting and worth traveling to see. So we see here London, the London perspective on empire, like the Shaw 20 years earlier and Victoria's uh, 50th anniversary. The true horrific reality of the British Empire buildings is not on display though, only its grandeur. So um, overall, um, we also see that these travel narratives, I'm, I'm just kind of hitting on themes we've been looking at with the uh, travel up to this point, is the hacking of the idea of American exceptionalism. Um, Twain is very much an American writer and he's of America, but he's, he's careful not to, especially later in his life, he, he falls away, I think, from some of this idea of American exceptionalism. And for instance, in The Cradle of Liberty, he writes about how Switzerland is a better example of a libertarian tradition than the United States was. In the Chicago of Europe, he uses Berlin as an example of a more rational urban development. And of course, Chicago had all the straight streets. So that was like the Midwest town that was like planned. Some National Stupidities is another travelogue. Is it in a more humorous way that kind of compares absurdities of daily life in Europe and the United States? Um, making fun of stoves and things like that. If it was like Slavoj's, that could be about the toilets, right? Between Germany and America. Uh, it's that kind of shtick. Um, as Twain started to learn in the context of the American conquest of the Pacific, the separation between the old world and the new world may not have been as great as many of the American writers may have believed. It may have, as Twain may have left or le believed when he was doing like Innocence Abroad. Certainly by this point, he is much more on board seeing America as just acting like another imperial bully on the world stage. Um, so that's, I guess that's going to be it um, for following the equator and for all the travelogues, except there might be some minor things some point in the future. Um, next up will be the final novels of Mark Twain. So we got The Gilded Age, The American Claimant, uh, Stranger Number 44, Mysterious Stranger, number 44. Uh, Tom Sawyer Detective, Tom Sawyer Abroad, those five. Some are quite short. The Tom Sawyer ones are, are short. They'll just be one episode. But we're going to uh, go through all these novels. And I'm excited to to kind of begin to wrap up this series on Mark Twain. So about 10 more episodes, another month or so of episodes will get us uh, through this. So anyways, uh, thanks for listening. Um, let me know what you think of the Mark Twain travel logs. I know it, it's been kind of a long journey through all of these, but I hope we're able to kind of get some meaning out of them. Hopefully um, we did. But anyways, um, let me know what you think. Uh, send me an email or uh, leave a message. Um, I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.